It's good to be back with family. <laughs> it's always a joy to come back to Anthem Church. Even though we left um, to move up to Idaho several years ago, we've been such a big fan of what God has been doing through this church. And just, you guys are such, a, such an example of, of what it is to live a, a genuine, radical life uh, in the kingdom of God. I mean, I mean an all-week fast, that's pretty bold to call a whole church to an all-week fast. I've actually been fasting all, all morning, ever since breakfast, and it's, <laughs> it's, it can be really tough, so I can't imagine doing it for all week, but uh, um, your generosity, your faithfulness, your zeal, and obviously nobody's perfect, and no church is perfect, but the one, the one thing I don't like about Anthem Church is when you leave Anthem Church, it's, it's hard to find another church. <laughs> Um, so thank you for that. Appreciate that. <laughs> um, I, I'm, uh, the, the passage we're going to talk about this morning is, it, it is, Matt said, uh, you know, it's a difficult passage for, for, for several reasons. Um, as you're going to see, there, there's some translation and interpretive difficulties in the passage. The passage has also been misused and misunderstood, and there's actually been people that have been really hurt, like deeply hurt, spiritually, uh, emotionally, by, by people misapplying this, this passage. And so I come at this passage with a, a lot of just trepidation to make sure I want to get this right, not just that I understand it right, but that I, that I communicate it right. And just to be totally honest with you, I, I, uh, what you're going to hear is like a third draft of a sermon. I was actually up late last night, not because I was at the beach all day, you know, wasting time, but because I was like, man, I just don't think this first draft was the best way to go about it, and the second draft, and third draft, I'm like, I really want to get this, get this right, because there's, 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 you'll see for several reasons this passage is, is, is really close to, my, close to my heart. So if you have your Bibles, or phones, or eyes, and you can just look at the screen, uh, <laughs> let's go and read um, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. Go ahead and throw that up on there if, if, you, if you could. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 10. I'm reading out of the NIV. It says, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And, and maybe as you're reading that passage, uh, I, I can almost guess that probably a lot of you, your minds and your hearts were maybe stirred, maybe, maybe questions are already coming up, and, and, and maybe you're seeing yourself in, in this passage on some level, and you're wondering, what, what does this have to, what does this say about you? So, so let me get two things quickly out of the way, as, as we, before we even dig into this passage, two things I need to say up front. Number one, this passage, or at least that, that, that first big paragraph, is not talking about Christians who struggle with sin. It's not saying that if you struggle with sexual immorality and, and, and you're submitting that to Jesus and maybe you're struggling and you're failing and then you're coming before God and repenting and then ne the next week you're struggling again and maybe you failed again and you come before Jesus and say, Jesus, please forgive me. 
of this sin. This passage isn't saying that that person or you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Or if you're struggling with, with, with idolatry or, or adultery, or maybe, maybe you've committed adultery and you've come before God and said, God, please forgive me of this sin. I don't want to do this. And I failed and I failed people in my lives. And I don't know what my life's going to look like moving forward, but God, I need your grace and your forgiveness. This passage is not saying that you will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's talking about people, it's not talking about Christians who are on an imperfect journey toward a perfect Savior. In fact, those are the types of people who precisely will inherit the kingdom of God. People who are on an imperfect journey toward a perfect Savior will inherit the kingdom of God. This passage is not talking about people that struggle with sin, but talking about people who are identified by their sin and are willfully and joyfully engaging in ongoing, unrepented sin and have not submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, second point as we get into this passage, Paul here is leveling the playing field. I I really hope that as you are reading that first paragraph, you saw part, part of your, your humanity, your, your, maybe your past, or may, maybe even a current thing you're, you're struggling with being identified here. Maybe you saw yourself in this passage, and if you didn't, you need to. <laughs> I mean, let, let me remind you that Jesus says, if any man lusts after a woman, he has committed adultery with her in his heart. Even if you don't struggle with, with, with idolatry, like even if you're like, yeah, you know, when I see a statue, I just, I'm not tempted to like just bow down and, and you know, I'm, I'm sorry that some people are just so tempted to bow down to idols. I just don't have that temptation. Let me remind you that Paul says in, Corinthian, or in Colossians that covetousness is idolatry. Ezekiel 14 talks about idols in our heart. Idolatry is setting up anything in your life above Jesus Christ. Uh, maybe you don't struggle with, with stealing things. So, the, you know, the, 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 you know the, the, the one who may struggle with sexual immorality could look at the, the thief and say, I can't believe you struggle with stealing stuff. Go get a job. And, and the thief might say, well, I can't believe you st- struggle with sexual immorality. Go steal something. Or I don't know what they would say about that. And, and if you have a Facebook account or a Twitter account, you struggle with slander. Paul is leveling the playing field here. That's so important to understand because we need to read this passage as beggars in need of God's grace. Beggars with enormous gratitude that that Jesus has forgiven us of these things that were such a part of our past identity, but now we may be a current struggle, but if it's a current struggle, that is not excluding us from the kingdom of God. But we cannot come to this as thieves who judge the sexually immoral or as drunkards who judge the idolaters. Because this passage can, it has the potential to stir up hypocrisy because we are all prone to vilify the sins that we struggle with the least. And so, 
when we read statements like men who have sex with men, the majority of people, the majority of people do not have this, this personal struggle in their life. The majority of people may not, may not have this experience or identity in, in their past. And so it, become, it can become really easy if you do have slander or drunkenness or idolatry or sexual immorality or adultery in your past, it can become easy for you to say, wow, I can't believe somebody would ever struggle with this. And you have to realize that in a room this size, how many are there? Matt, do you have a head count? <laughs> Two. So statistically, there are 15, 20 of you in this room who do have this current struggle, perhaps an experience you've had or an, a set of experiences. We need to make sure we don't vilify the sins that we struggle with the least. So here's what I want to do for this morning. I, I, I want to focus on the statement, men who have sex with men. And, and I, I so hesitate doing this because in the past, straight Christians have gone to this passage and, and just singled out that sin while ignoring the rest. But please hear me again. I am not singling out this sin and ignoring the rest. I am including this sin with the rest. But I do want to focus on it this morning for, for two main reasons. Number one, it is extremely debated and contested what this phrase actually means. This is one translation, as we're going to see. There's a myriad of other ways in which that phrase, men who have sex with men, has been translated. It's one of the most, it has been one of the most contested, translated phrases in the entire New Testament. Many articles and books have been written on this phrase alone because there is a massive debate about what the, the Greek words behind this passage actually mean. So I, I think I would do the church a disservice if I just simply glossed over that. Do, we need to dig deep into this passage because it, it is a difficult passage to translate. But number two, the mistranslation of this passage or misapplication of this specific verse has caused a lot of damage in people's lives. And so I want to I wanna dig deep to make sure that we don't misuse what God has spoken about through the Apostle Paul. I've got a friend named Matthew. Uh, this chair stool represents Matthew. Matthew was raised in a Christian home and a sold-out believer in Jesus Christ from a young age. Uh, but when he hit junior high, sorry, going through puberty, he felt himself being attracted to other guys. He, he, these desires just started to come upon him. While, while all the other kids at school, all, all his other guy friends were talking about this girl and that girl and, and were experiencing opposite sex attraction, he was in, in secret experiencing unwanted attractions to the same sex. And, and he tried to pretend like they weren't there, and so he would talk about, oh, yeah, that girl's cute. Oh, yeah, I want to date her. And he would, he would try to be somebody that, that he, he wasn't experiencing on the inside. And so he would go to bed at night praying to God for hours every night. God, take this away. Take this away. He'd wake up early in the morning and, and memorize whole books of the Bible, thinking if I just memorize the Bible, maybe this will go away. 
God, why aren't you taking this away? He ended up being very isolated and, and, and wrestling with a, a, a profound sense of shame as a young teenager by himself, scared to death that somebody might find this out about him. Madly in love with Jesus. And so he started to wrestle with, what does the Bible say about this? And, and after studying the scriptures, he, he came to the conclusion that God does not intend for him to act on this attraction, that the God doesn't endorse same-sex sexual relationships. And so he came before God and said, God, I, because I'm so in love with you, because I, I want to follow your word, I am going to commit my life to celibacy. As long as this, this attraction is here, this unwanted attraction, I'm going to be committed to celibacy out of my allegiance to Jesus Christ. At 19, he came out to his elders at his church, came out in the sense of, uh, hey, I want you to know that this is a temptation that I have in my life. And just so you know, uh, Matt has not, like, he's never even, like, touched another person romantically. I mean, he's more, like, sexually pure than, like, all the youth groups in California combined. <laughs> except, for, except for Anthem. I mean, he is... He is faithfully pursuing Jesus, comes out to his elders, said, hey, I just want you to know I have this struggle. I'm not acting on it. I'm not violating anything that, you know, the, the, the code of conduct in, 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 in the church's statement, but I just want to be real with you that he, this is a struggle I have. And one of the elders said, well, Matthew, I don't think you can be at our church any longer because we don't accept the gay lifestyle at our church. And he was kind of thrown off. <laughs> What do you mean by the gay lifestyle? I just said I have this temptation, but if you simply, in some people's minds, if you simply say you are gay, that you're attracted to the same sex, and that automatically means you must be having sex with tons of guys every single night. Another elder jumped in and said, well, Matthew, we certainly can't have you around our kids anymore, our children. We have to protect our children from you. And he had to tell his elder, sir, I'm not a pedophile. I have zero desire to harm another child. This passage is not saying that Matthew will not inherit the kingdom of God. My friend Tony, who I've been friends with for a couple years now, and just a couple days ago he told me his story, and he said, when I was, um, when I was nine years old, I was having a, a bunch of friends over to watch a movie, it was kind of a sleepover, and uh, you know, it was late at night, we're watching a movie, and I was watching, you know, we're all on the floor watching a movie, and one of the kids lying next to me happened to, you know, fell asleep, fall asleep, and, and his head kind of leaned on Tony's shoulder, okay? I mean, it's no big deal. But his mom walks in and kind of freaks out, grabs Tony by the ear, pulls him up, drags him outside, looks at him and says, Tony, I love you, and I will forgive you of anything but if you choose to be gay, I will never forgive you. Tony was freaked out, but didn't really think about it until the nightmare set in. Several years later, he realized that he experienced unwanted attractions to other guys. And he walked through his teenage years absolutely scared to death. I don't, 
Tony told me, I, I, I didn't know what this meant. I, 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 it's like Matthew, I tried to pray the gay away, tried to do this, tried to do that, and just begging God to take this away all along, just scared for my life that if my mom ever found out about this, I would be on the streets as a 14-year-old. I live with a daily profound sense of shame that God just sees me as intrinsically disgusting. This passage does not say that Tony will not inherit the kingdom of God. Tony now is an amazing pastor, and uh, he uh, still experiences an attraction to the same sex. He's actually married to a woman, and uh, they have one of the most beautiful marriages uh, I've ever seen. We need to understand that when we come to this passage that we are, we are talking about real people. That, that when we read statements like men who have sex with men, we, we need to make sure we know exactly what this is actually talking about so we don't take it out of its context and misapply it to somebody else because that misapplication has produced all kinds of damage and harm in other people's lives. So let's, let's dig into this passage with, with, with that, just with people in front of us. And I know, I know many of you here have people in your lives, at the very least, maybe this is your story, but at least you have people in your lives that you're wrestling with how to navigate these relationships. And so let's dig in with people in mind here to this passage. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 is one of the five or six passages in the Bible that directly mentions same-sex sexual behavior. It's also one of the most disputed, divisive, and mistranslated passages in the Bible. And it can be very costly in some cases if you mistranslate the Bible. Uh, for instance, in 2008, there was a Michigan attorney by the name of Brad Fowler, who um, uh, was gay, not a Christian, but he sued Zondervan Publishing House for $60 million because Zondervan publish, publishes the NIV translation, and in an older 1984 version of the NIV, it translated this phrase, instead of men who have sex with men, it translated it as homosexual offenders. And Bradley Fowler sued Zondervan Publishing House because he says this translation caused him, and I quote, anxiety, loss of sleep, loss of appetite, self-esteem, loss of self-esteem and the ability, loss of the ability to reestablish any family bonds. Uh, he didn't win the lawsuit, and I think, uh, I, I think he shouldn't have won, won the lawsuit. $60 million is pretty steep for a translation um, of the text, but it does show you how, how much this verse can impact people. And and I, agree, I actually agree, I don't agree that he should have sued Zondervan for this, but I do, I do agree that the phrase homosexual offenders is not a good translation of the actual Greek text. I mean, what does this even mean, homosexual offender? I mean, some people said, yeah, this is exactly what it means. You shouldn't offend homosexuals. And if you do, you may not inherit the kingdom of God. <laughs> Other translations are also uh, wrong, and they differ very widely. The King James Version says, uh, Do not be deceived, neither the fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, 
nor abusers of themselves with mankind. What does that mean? You know, in certain locker room contexts, the effeminate is just simply a guy who can't throw a football. <laughs> and what does it mean to be abuser of yourself with mankind? I mean, mankind's a generic word for men and women. Does it, would this include a guy who is prone to date girls who verbally abuse him? Is that, would that be included under this weird generic phrase, abuser of yourself with mankind? We need to make sure we understand what this text is saying. That the New King James, I don't think they improved upon this, upon the Old King James much at all. They translate the passage, uh, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites will inherit the kingdom of God. What is, so, so you're telling me, New King James, that, I mean, to be a, a homosexual or to be gay is simply to experience same-sex attraction. Doesn't mean, doesn't mean you're sexually active. I mean, if you're heterosexual, does that by definition mean you're sexually active? Well, no. It just means you're attracted to the opposite sex. Well, to be gay just simply means you're attracted to the same sex. So, so does that mean that, that, Matthew, you will not inherit the kingdom of God? Sorry, dude. Out of luck. Tony, I, just the way it is, it's what the Bible says, you're, you, you, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God because you are gay. And what is a sodomite? According to Ezekiel, the sin of Sodom was that Sodom and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, unconcerned, and they did not help the poor and needy. <laughs> That's like half the American evangelical church. <laughs> Sodomites. Not inheriting the kingdom of God. And some people may say, okay, okay, no, no, it's talking about the story of Sodom and the book of Genesis. But if you go back and read that story, you read about an entire town, the entire male population of the town of Sodom that tried to gang rape two angels. Matthew, you know, do you ever struggle with wanting to gang rape angels? Nope. N never had that urge. Tony, when you see an angelic being, does it just, you know, stir? Nope. Not my struggle. Sodomite is not a very good translation here. The message, Eugene Peterson, I love Eugene Peterson, okay, but, but th I think this, this, this translation, or, or you know, it's a kind of a, 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 a more of an interpretation here. He says those who use and abuse each other, use and abuse sex, those who uh, use and those who abuse the earth and everything in it. You got that on there? Will not inherit the kingdom of God. Apparently that includes people who don't recycle. <laughs> So make sure you get your, your, the color of your bins right here. So, I mean, we can go on and on and on. No, no two translations agree here. And so we, we need to, I, I, just a just little caveat here. I know he introduced me with PhD and scholarly stuff. I rarely, like, preach sermons where I'm like, all right, we're going to spend 45 minutes in the Greek text, and I don't care if you don't know Greek, you know, this is, you know, for God so loved the world, you know. And the world is a word cosmos, and it means world, <laughs> you know? So, so, so sometimes people who have degrees can get too wrapped up in the Greek, and look, most of the time, 98% of the time, our translations are really, really good. In this, in this case, we, we actually do need to dig in. 
for the sake of my friends and many other people and millions of people around the country who, who have been victims of a mistranslation and, and Christians taking this verse and, and slapping it on somebody's experience that, that doesn't really match up. Because of that, because of people, we need to be good interpreters of God's word. So what does God say in this text? We are going to dig deep into two Greek words for the remaining of our time. But as we, as we come to this passage, we, we have to try to put ourselves in the shoes of a first century uh, Jew or Christian or Jewish Christian. When we come to questions of marriage and sexuality, we, we can't read it through the lens of our 21st century, Western, very, very secular context. So, for instance, I mean, in, in, in most people's minds in the West, in America, in Europe, most people, when they, when they talk about, like, marriage, uh, they define marriage as simply the, the, the union between two consenting adults. Two adults fall in love, and they commit to each other, and then those two adults can get married. As long as they're not harming anybody, you know, then kind of anything goes. That, that's a very modern, Western definition of marriage. That is not how any first century Jew or Jewish Christian or Christian would have defined marriage. So as we come to this passage, just two points. Number one, the first century Jewish context would define marriage as the union between two sexually different Persons, so that sex difference is precisely part of what marriage is. And there's just, there's one, this is one passage. This is the, from uh, Matthew 19. These are the words of Jesus. I should have put them in red, but, well, nobody reads red-letter Bibles anymore. I actually like the red-letter Bibles, but anyway, this is, these are the words of Jesus here. And Jesus says, at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason... A man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his uh, wife. And the two will become one flesh. If you notice here, the two that become one flesh are not just two humans, two consenting adults. They are precisely a male and a female. So that in the first century Jewish context, when they said the word marriage, they meant the coming together of two sexually different persons. So, so the whole idea of something called same-sex Marriage would have been incomprehensible to a first century Jew. Marriage meant sex differences coming together. So, th so that's, how, that, that, that's the lens through which a first century reader of this passage would have came to the text. Also, number two, um, the Bible always prohibits same-sex sexual relationships. Uh, there's not a lot of passages here, just so you know. I remember when I first got into this conversation, I started, you know, Googling the verses that talk about homosexuality. I was like, wow, there's only like five or six of these. There's not a whole lot. There doesn't, and that doesn't really mean much because the Bible has an overarching definition of marriage. So that's, that's the most important thing. But when the Bible does mention same-sex sexual relationships, they are always prohibited. So our passage is one of those passages. And to be honest, it is probably the most disputed because of the, the translation Difficulty. So when we come to 1 Corinthians 6 9, the phrase men who have sex with men translates two Greek words. The Greek words are malakoi and arsenakoite. Malakoi, 
Arsenakwate. You don't, you, don't you don't need to memorize them, but we do need to talk about these words. So the, these are the two words, the two Greek words that Paul is, that, <laughs> that God breathed out through the pen of Paul. Okay, so this is really important. Now, let's talk about the first word, arsenakwete. Arsenakwete never occurs in all of Greek literature prior to Paul. And if you know anything about ancient literature, I mean, we have piles and piles and piles of Greek literature before Paul. If you comb through all of that literature, which some people have, I, I, it would take me probably 500 years to do that, but some people, they just love this stuff, so they read through all the Greek literature, and then they come to the Apostle Paul, who's writing in Greek, and they say, this word arsenakwete, it doesn't occur anywhere else. This is the first time we see it in all of Greek literature. Which is why people are like, oh man, we don't know what this means. But if you dig into the word, I think the meaning is not as difficult as some people have made it out to be. Arsenakwete is a combination of two words that are well known, arson and koite. Arson just simply is the common word for male or man. Uh, koite, it literally means bed, but it's often used in context sort of uh, metaphorically to refer to lying with in, in, you know, in a sexual sense. So this word, if you take the two words of the compound, then it means something, has something to do with lying sexually in males. But what's interesting and where the meaning is really derived from is if you go back to Leviticus. It just so happens that these, the two separate words that make up the compound word, they both occur side by side in Leviticus 20, 13, and they're pretty close together in 18, 22. And these are the two passages in the Old Testament that directly prohibit male, same-sex, sexual relationships. And so it seems pretty clear that Paul is actually going back to Leviticus and, and drawing from that context to create this word. Just because it occurs the first time in its compound form in the New Testament doesn't mean its meaning is incomprehensible. So then we have to ask, what is, what is Leviticus all about? Well, I mean, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a prohibition of male same-sex relationships, and it's prohibiting male same-sex relationships categorically, meaning Leviticus isn't talking about like male cult prostitutes. It's not just talking about um, exploitation or males raping their male slaves, which was something that happened in that world. It is categorically saying God does not intend for men to lie sexually with other men. Leviticus also, neither Leviticus nor 1 Corinthians is talking about people who simply experience an attraction to the same sex. That is so important to understand. And if, if I can even say it, Leviticus isn't talking about gay people per se. Just because somebody experiences same-sex attraction, and, and like my friends and many others that are submitting that to Jesus, you can't go to Leviticus and say, this verse is saying something to you. Matthew's going to say, I'm not doing what that verse is saying. <laughs> I have the desire, the attraction to temptation, but I'm not acting on it. And if you are opposite sex attracted, <laughs> and, and, and you have sexual temptations, and, and you are submitting that to Jesus, you don't fall under the condemnation of thou shalt not commit sexual immorality. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Arsenakwites 
referring to men who are having, are having sex with men. The other word, malakoi, literally means soft ones. In fact, it's the same word that's used in Matthew 11 when John the Baptist referred to those who wear soft clothing, live in you know, luxury or whatever exactly he said there. It just means soft. It could refer to soft clothing or just, just means soft. Now, the term is often used to apply to at least three different kinds of uh, people. Uh, first of all, people who indulged in excessive living Sex, money, food, drink. Or it was often used to refer to men who significantly crossed gender boundaries. And this is where that, the, the, the King James came up with the word effeminate. But effeminate can be applied to all kinds of different people. It's way too broad of a word. This is not talking about just, again, please, in, in locker room kind of lingo, like men who can't throw a football. It's talking about people who cross-identified, if you will, men who presented and lived like women. In sexual contexts, malakoi was often used to apply to men who, bear with me, played the passive role in a same-sex sexual relationship. And so this, if you combine arsenakoite and malakoi, it refers to the active and passive partners in a same-sex sexual Relationship. So I do think the, the updated, the, the NIV did update in 2011. When you get sued for $60 million, you start to ask some questions like, all right, let's, let's revisit this translation and see if we can improve upon it. They did that, and they now translate it, men who have sex with men, which is a much more accurate statement. Let me give you three summary points in this passage as we come to a close. And I'm sure that you guys, some of you have like a lot more questions. <laughs> you came in thinking you're just going to come to church, and now you're like, all right, I got like 30 questions tonight. Uh, Matt will talk about a little bit. We will unpack some of those, and even then you'll probably leave with 50 questions. This, this, there's complex layers to this conversation. Understand that we can't cram it all into a 40-minute message. But let me give you three summary points on this passage. Number one, just to kind of repeat what I said earlier, this is not talking about strugglers but people engaging in ongoing, unrepented sin. Some of you may struggle with sexual immorality, with porn, sex outside of marriage, battling lustful thoughts, greed, slander, same-sex sexual behavior, opposite-sex lust, same-sex lust. This, if you're struggling and you're, and you're pursuing Jesus, yes, imperfectly, we all are. But if, if, if you're trying to submit this to Jesus and, and you're trying to follow him and, and every now and then you fall and some weeks are just terrible weeks, but you come before God and say, God, can you, I'm so sorry. Can you please forgive me yet again? I almost hate asking for forgiveness again. God's going to say, your sin has been nailed to the cross and I delight in forgiving you. Thank you for coming before me and receiving my ongoing, never-ending grace. This isn't talking about strugglers, but people engaging in ongoing, unremorseful, unrepentant sin. Number two, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 is not talking about gay people per se. It's not talking about Matthew, Tony, or the hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people who have similar stories 
who have found Jesus and on various levels are submitting their sexuality to Jesus. It's not talking about somebody who is simply gay. Gay people are not excluded from the kingdom of God. People who are engaging in unrepentant sexual sin of all sorts might show evidence that they haven't actually submitted to the lordship of Jesus. I mean, we can't say we want to follow Jesus. You are Lord of my life. Thank you for forgiving me, but I'm going to just live this way, and I don't care what you say. That's not part of the Christian identity. Part of the Christian identity is I am a beggar, I am broken, I am daily in need of grace, and I'm, I am imperfectly pursuing that and living in that grace. This is not talking about people who are simply same-sex attracted or gay who are following Jesus in that. Number three, Savior before sexuality. Savior before sexuality. I deliberately worded that ambiguously. <laughs> what does that mean? Savior before sexuality. This is what I mean. We are not saved by sexual purity. We are saved by the purifying work of Jesus Christ. The church has a history of people who have failed and, and think that they are now excluded from God's aggressive grace. That's not what this passage is saying. We are not saved by sexual purity, but by the purifying work of Jesus. The gospel is not God can make you straight, but God can make you holy. And sometimes we, we enter into just sexuality conversations, generally speaking, and we get too focused on sexuality when we should be more focused on Jesus. I, I love Augustine's quote. You know, Augustine was just overwhelmed with sexual desires. If you read his confessions, it's just, this guy was just, I mean, sexual desires were a, a huge part of his, his, his life. There's even, there's even some evidence that he may have had same-sex sexual encounters. I just discovered that recently. And some, of you, some people are like, no, not Augustine. I'm like, again, you're missing the point if you freak out that he might have had a same-sex sexual encounter because he came to Jesus and found forgiveness for all of his sin. But he didn't just, you know, you seen that Bob Newhart clip? You know, he didn't just stop it. Okay, sex, bad, stop it. <laughs> it's not primarily about sexuality. It's we have a, a God-shaped hole in our hearts and we're gonna stuff it full of everything else, idols and greed and, and sex and food and comfort and all these things. We have this hole in our heart. We're gonna try to shove all these things to fill it and we will, it will never work until we realize that only Jesus can fill that void in our life. You have made us for our, yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you, O Lord. We have been washed. We have been cleansed and sanctified. We have been justified by Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. My friend Lori Krieg um, was raised in a, in a huge family. She's one of 11, one of 12 kids. She's number nine, okay? She's one of those families, right? I mean, they have a, a, a minivan twice the size of, as the Larsons. I mean, they, they <laughs> what, <laughs> and not the, well, as you can imagine, they, yes, they homeschooled, okay? Not that if you have 12 kids, but yeah, they homeschooled. Very conservative Christian household. 
Lori growing up with, you know, a lot, lot of kind of pressure to be this kind of perfect Christian. Well, she, on two occasions, was sexually abused. And when she entered into her puberty age, she ended up experiencing unwanted same-sex desires and uh, tried to pretend like they didn't exist. Like so many stories, oh, God, please don't let anybody find this out about me. I will be ruined if people simply know I have this desire. And then she tried to fill that desire. She, and this, this is her story. She, she started to date girls and do this and do that, you know, secretly, keep it on the down low. And she says, my heart was always restless. It was just, it was never truly satisfying. Because I am more than my sexuality. God sees us as more than our sexuality. It is an aspect of who we are. But the primary aspect of who we are is we are children of God. And it wasn't until she came to the place when she realized that only God can fill this void in her life when she experienced true human flourishing. And she says, I was transformed not from gay to straight, not from same-sex attracted to opposite-sex attracted, but from enslaved to my wants to surrendered to the only one who could truly meet my core needs. Whatever thing you are trying to fill that hole in your heart with. Maybe it's idolatry, maybe it's adultery, maybe it's sexual morality, maybe it's slander, maybe it's all the other things in 1 Corinthians. It just won't work. It just won't satisfy. And if you're trying to stop this and stop that, you're not going to have the power to do so until you start saying yes to Jesus and let him fill the void in your life. We can't understand a Christian sexual ethic or a Christian approach to sanctification until we first joyfully come under the lordship of Jesus Christ, who not only can forgive us, not only wants to forgive us, but who delights in forgiving us of our sins. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for washing us and sanctifying us and justifying us by Jesus Christ through the power of your Holy Spirit, God. I just, I, I want to pray for my two friends here on stage, Tony and Matthew. Wherever they are in this moment, on this Sunday morning, I pray that you would overwhelm their hearts with, with comfort, that you would give them the courage and power to continue to pursue you, to continue to be models of faithfulness and radical Christian living. I thank you that the example they have been to me and so many other people in their lives, and I pray that you would help us as a church, especially those of us who, who might not have this personal struggle in our life, that we would seek to understand before we critique, before we assume certain things about these dear friends of mine. God, give us the grace to reach out to those who have been so marginalized by the church. In Christ's name we pray, amen.